I'm going to pray. We're going to get right into it. God, I want to thank you for your grace and your mercy. I want to thank you for your word. Thank you that you've caused it to be written. Thank you that we have it and we can engage it and we can learn from it. And that's even today, thousands of years later, it's still relevant in our lives. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for loving us beyond what we can ever imagine, beyond what we can ever realize. This morning, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, so church number six this morning, the church of Philadelphia And we're just going to refer to it as the church in Philly. It's just much easier to say. Now, Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, isn't such an old city as far as cities goes back then anyway. Uh, It was established around 180 to 140 B.C., which I know means absolutely nothing to any of you. But I would encourage you this week or today, as you're mulling around, as you're doing whatever you're doing today, to show yourself a little bit of a Bible geek and just throw that out in passing conversation. Hey, did you know that the ancient church in the book of Revelations, the church of Philadelphia, is actually established between 180 and 140 B.C.? And see what kind of feedback you get from that, all right? So anyway, the church, it's not, or the city, it's not such an old church, but it was an important, um, it wasn't such an old city, but it was an important city. Because it was a gateway from one continent to another. It was a gateway from Europe to the east. And it was established for a very specific reason. The city of Philadelphia was was established so it could spread the Hellenistic culture to the Phrygian lands. So everything Greek, the Greek culture, Greek language, Greek religion, Greek commerce, they, they wanted to get it out there into the Phrygians and to establish Greekness, I guess you can call it. But the problem was those people were considered to be barbarians. And they weren't too hip on the whole Greek thing. And the city actually failed in its attempts. And so as it tried to push the culture out into these lands, nothing. The lands pushed back and they, were, they failed. The city itself was located right near a volcano, which is probably one of the first rules against real estate. Location, 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 probably not a volcano, a good idea. But because it was near a volcano, the lands were very fertile. And because they were fertile, they were known to have some of the best vineyards in all of the area, in all of the world, in fact. And so good grapes meant, in this day and age, good wine. And I've heard that wine tastes good. I mean, you know, people have told me that, that have actually drunk wine. And so they had, they were known for their trade of wine because of the grapes. Now also in the area, being near a volcano, there's all these natural hot springs and people from everywhere would come because there were supposed to be medicinal purposes sitting and soaking in this water. It could cure whatever would ail you. And so there's a lot of people coming through the city of Philadelphia. A lot of drunken people coming through the city of Philadelphia. But being near a volcano, it had a few drawbacks. One of the big ones is it was known for its earthquakes. Earthquakes happened very frequently. In fact, in 17 AD, 
an earthquake came and completely destroyed the city. And Rome helped them rebuild it, and they were so happy that they named, renamed the city after the Caesar, but then they didn't like the Caesar anymore because he made them cut down half of their grapevine, so they put the name back to Philadelphia. And so as these earthquakes would come, and they would come very frequently, it caused, it caused some tension in the people's lives. And what they would do is they would feel the earthquake and they would run out to the countryside because I guess they didn't want to have buildings fall on them and and things like that. So they would go out to the countryside and they would just hang out there until the earthquakes were over, until the aftershocks were over, and then they would come back into the city. So there's this constant coming and going for the people. There was never any time to just exhale and enjoy life because they were always worried about the earthquakes. It was also known as a center for cultic worship. The main temple was the temple of Dionysius, the god of wine. It would make sense since the city has gotten so rich from grapes and wine that their god would be the god of wine. But it wasn't the only temple there. There were many, many other temples to other gods, and there was also a very large Jewish population in the city. In fact, that the city of Philadelphia had a nickname of Little Athens because of its religious diversity. And so there are all of these things are going on within the city, within this population. And even to this day, now the city is in Turkey, it's called something else, but to this day, the city still stands and there's still a strong Christian population that lives there. And this is what God would write. This is what Jesus would say to the city, to the church. So the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, that you have kept my word and have, not, have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world to, de- to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Those who are victorious, I will make pillars in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so as usual, there's a lot going on in here. So we got to break this down a little bit. So we're going to start right on verse Seven, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Jesus is setting the tone again to these churches. He is establishing his authority. And this authority is not an authority to rebuke the church. In fact, this is only the second church that Jesus has nothing against. The other one was Smyrna. This one in Philadelphia, Jesus doesn't have anything against this church. And as in Smyrna, Philadelphia has a very large, what they would consider Jewish population, but God says these are not Jews at all. 
They have a group of people who call themselves God's people, but they don't act like God's people. And they are slandering and going after these Christians because these Christians began in the synagogue. And they will see later that they've been kicked out because of what they believe. And Jesus tells them, I am holy and true, or a literal translation would be, I am the holy one and I am the true one. And holy one is this Old Testament expression used for God. And Jesus is using it to say, I am sovereign over everything. Nothing comes and nothing goes unless I have given it permission to do so. Jesus is in charge. And then he says, I am true or genuine and faithful. And what he's saying here is that he is the Messiah. The Messiah that the prophets prophesied about. Jesus is the Messiah. And he is faithful in that everything that he is supposed to do as the, as the Messiah, both past, present, and future, he will do. And this church does not have to fear. Because he is the Holy One, sovereign over all things. And he is the true one. And it's through Christ and Christ alone that we, that the church, gain access into the kingdom of God because he holds the key. Jesus has established himself as a Davidic Messiah prophesied about, and he holds the key to the kingdom and no one else. And he will open the door for this church to come in. And I can imagine that this has to to be good news for this church because remember, they've been kicked out of the synagogue. These people who, who once were living in the Jewish tradition have now looked at Jesus as the Messiah and they have kicked them out. They've lost their community. And Jesus is telling them, listen, you have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear because I hold the key to the kingdom. And I will open the door for you. Can you imagine having faith in Christ Can you imagine losing your family, losing your friends, losing your job, losing your community, losing your support system? This is what this church is experiencing. And Jesus is telling them, don't worry about it. He will tell them, I know your deeds. You know, that line messes with me a little bit. I know your deeds. That, that gives me great comfort. And it gives me a little tension in my life. Jesus knows the deeds of everyone sitting in this room. Jesus knows the deeds of we, us, as a church. Does that mess with you a little bit? Or am I just the only one? Nobody get, okay, fine. You're going to have to answer to him, not me. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, that you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus has opened the door. Now, there's a few, there's a few meanings here in the context of this open door, this, this illusion, this, this idea of the open door. And I don't think one is wrong and one is right. I kind of like them both. 
And the first is Jesus has opened the door to the kingdom of God. Jesus has opened the door to eternal life. That faith in him has now brought these people into God's kingdom, into God's graces, and they have been forgiven. They have gained access. And no one, no one can shut the door on them. Ever. Never. Jesus has opened it, and what he opens, no one can shut. And though they've been kicked out, they've been slandered against, they have a new home. They have a new place to call home, to come and be accepted for who they are. See, the doors of the kingdom of God will never be closed in the followers of Jesus Christ. There's this also another meaning to this, I believe, and it's just as important as, as the, the kingdom idea. And it's, it's for the church as the church lives in the world and as it operates in the world. And so it, it's for us. And the meaning would be very familiar to the church in Philadelphia, especially in the context of where they're living. Because remember, this city was set up as a missionary city to go and spread the Greek culture to the Phrygian lands. And though they have failed, it's still considered to be a missionary city. And maybe we could say that the doors of the Greek or the, the doors were closed to the Greek culture out to these lands. But Jesus is telling this church now that as they find themselves in this city, he has opened the door to these lands. He has opened the door for them to share their story, to share the gospel, to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And nothing is going to shut it. Nothing is going to come against them. Nothing is going to be victorious over them. And he knows their condition. He knows what they're going through. This church was a very small church. It didn't have a lot of people in it. And they had little strength, which would mean that they had very little influence in society, very little influence in their culture. In fact, they had very little influence even in the context of religion. They were considered a cult. Now, how do we consider cults today? We stay away from them. We say, oh, you better not get involved. So that's the way this church was treated as a cult. Maybe they felt a little ineffective because they were small. Maybe they felt a little discouraged because they've lost everything for this Jesus. But Jesus will tell them, listen, don't, don't look at the things you are not doing. Don't get caught up in the world's standard of success. Don't measure your influence by the world's standards. What is important is this, that you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. That's what's important to Jesus, that they have kept his word and not denied his name. And this is the reason why he has opened the door to the kingdom of heaven and he has opened the doors to other lands and other people to spread the gospel, to push back the darkness for the good of the kingdom, for the good of the entire world. You know, church, as we, as we grow together as a church, as we move together as a community we have to keep our priorities straight. We have to keep what's important 
important. Never has our priority been to fill or to build a church with lots of people. Now, yes, we moved into a building, but remember we consider this to be a step in moving in the direction God is calling us to. I have never read a church growth book. And if I did, then by the grace of God, I have forgotten everything I read. I've never, well, I did read a few church planting books, but by the grace of God, I've forgotten all that I've read because we have broke all the rules on a regular basis. That's never been our priority to put, what's the word I can use? Is butts okay in church? Rear ends? Tookus. I've never wanted just to put tookuses, took guy, I don't, you know what I mean. Just bring people in and fill up the church with people. People, yeah, we could, we, we could do that. Yeah, right, right, right. I don't know, my mind goes somewhere else, you know? It's the old biker in me. So anyway, um, and I never will expect you to read church growth books because that's not our priority. And you know, we have never really marketed our church. We've never made it a priority. In fact, for over two years, we didn't even have a sign. I mean, it was just like, you want to find us? Good luck, we're at the Grange. I don't know what to tell you. We've never done any mass mailings. We've never done phone call canvassings. We did get a little pub when we moved in here, you know, a few press releases. We had a few articles written about us, you know, and that's fine. But we've never made that a priority. Now, I'm not saying those things are good. I'm not saying those things are bad. They just are what they are. And I really don't believe those types of things actually work all that much. I had a friend who's a pastor. They did a 20,000 mailing around their town. You know how, people, how many people came to their church because of that? Two. 20,000 cost $5,000. Two. So we've never really made it a priority to market our church. And we've never, we've never looked for the next big thing, the next big flavor of the month in evangelical worlds. Yeah, we did the whole uh, Advent conspiracy a few years ago, and that was kind of cool, but that was a very short amount of time. We've never really branded ourselves. I don't think that we are a, I don't think we're an emerging church. I don't think we're seeker sensitive. In fact, I would say we're probably more leaning against seeker insensitive. But hey, that's just us, you know. I don't believe we're traditional, but I'm not sure we're really contemporary either. So I don't know really know where we land. We have been called the renegade church. And, and you know, and I got to be honest, the sinful side of me in that just loves that name. I mean, I'd be straight up. But, you know, don't judge. God's working on me still. So I know he's going to work on that. And so, but I know we fit in somewhere, but I'm just really not sure where we fit in. But we've never made our branding a priority. Here's what's been our priority. And here's what will continue to be our priority. That we will keep the word of God and we will not deny his name that we will keep the word of God and we will not deny his name. And in this day and age, just as it was for this church in Philly, sometimes that's a difficult thing to do. Sometimes there's, it brings tension in our lives because everything pushes against us to keep the word of God and not deny his name. 
but it's following the word of God, doing the internal work and the external work that opens the doors of the kingdom of heaven. Doing the internal work. Does the word of God richly dwell within your heart, within your soul? Is it changing you? Do you make it a priority to read it and to engage it? Are you learning from it? Are you moving through it? Is God teaching you continually new things about yourself and about the world that's around you? This is part of the internal work of the Word of God. Is it revealing to you the deeper mysteries of the Spirit? Are you walking in more power and more authority than, say, last year? Are you doing the internal work of the Word of God? Are you being convicted in new ways? Is God refining your life in new ways because of his word, because it richly dwells within you? Let me tell you something. If you are continually being convicted of the same thing over and over and over again, guess what? You're in trouble. Something's wrong. You're stuck. God is not going to go away. He's not going to let you off the hook for that thing. You are going to deal with it, and then maybe he will let you move on. But until you deal with it, he's not going to give up on you. It's part of God's grace and mercy. Is it continually convicting you in new ways? Or are you trying to deny something, run away from something? Are you trying to just forget about it? Are you trying to hide you ever try to hide from God? Just, I mean, I didn't go to seminary or anything, but it doesn't work. And so let me give you a little free advice. You don't even have to pay for this. Deal with it. Whatever it is, deal with it. This is part of the internal work of the word of God in your life. And then we have the external stuff. In James, it says, faith without Works is dead. We are called to do something. The words of Jesus, his teaching, they command us. They command us to go out. They command us to love. They command us to serve. They command us to do something for the kingdom of God. Something to push back the darkness. We live in a world that's broken. And we are called to engage this world. Not to run from it, not to hide from it, but to be in it and shine the light of Jesus Christ to people. And that's the external work of the word of God, of the gospel. We are not called to live a life of complacency. We're called to live a life of passion and work. Not just in here, but your job, your family, your neighbor's. The person that you open the door for at the store. This is the external work of the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew 5, he said, Let your light shine before others that they will see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. When we fail to do the interior work, when we fail to do the exterior work, the internal, the external stuff, we bring sickness on ourselves. 
We bring spiritual sickness. We bring emotional sickness. Even, I would say, physical sickness. And when there's a group of people that are sick and we come together in the community, guess what? The entire community is sick. The entire community is weakened. Jesus isn't impressed with how slick we are. He's not impressed with all the bells and whistles or how we use social media to spread the gospel. He's not impressed with with pithy little Father's Day videos. He's not impressed with sermon illustrations. He's not even impressed with my preaching, which I don't know why. But I've, he's not, what Jesus, what his priority is for us is that we will keep his word and not deny his word. Everything else flows from it. Everything else flows that's healthy and that's good. You know, deny the name of Jesus before men and guess what? He denies our name before the Father. That's no joke. That is no joke. And then this text goes on to tell us that that Jesus will vindicate his church in the eyes of the people who have slandered them and persecuted them. The people that have kicked them out of their community, Jesus is going to show those people that this small Christian church, these small, the small followers of Jesus are living in the truth and God the Father loves them and has poured out his grace and his mercy upon them. And in the end times, when trials come, and they will come, when the world is tested, Jesus will be their strength. He's not going to rescue them out of it. He's not going to just allow them to skate through it. But as they're in it, he will be their rock. He will be their foundation. And he will be their victory. In the last section, I'm coming to you soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Those who are victorious, I will make pillars in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus is telling them, hold on to what you have. Don't let anybody steal your crown. Don't let anyone steal your prize. No church, not even a church that has no rebuke from Jesus Christ, no church is safe from slipping up in the future. No church is safe from not making, getting their priorities all messed up or losing focus on the things that are important. And I've said this once, and I will say it again. Diligence to the gospel has to be the most important thing in a follower's life. Diligence to living the gospel has to be the mark of a follower of Jesus. Because there are so many things that are vying for your attention and vying for your time and pulling you in a hundred different directions. And if God or if, if the enemy can get you just to be ineffective, not even take away your salvation or keep you, you know, send you to hell. I'm not even talking about that. If he can take a Christian and make them ineffective, he smiles because he's won. 
because we're not doing the work of the gospel. We are not keeping the word of God both internally and externally. And then Jesus says, I will make those to be a pillar in the house of the Lord, in the temple. You have to understand, in Philadelphia, when a man uh, that would serve in public service for the city, when he did well, when he left a legacy behind, and when he died, they would erect a monument to him. Even if a priest served well in one of the temples and finished well, they would erect a monument in the city for him. And this monument was a pillar in one of the temples of the gods. And they would put this pillar in and they would inscribe this man's title on it. And they would inscribe this man's name. And it would be a memorial, a testament to his life. And what Jesus is telling us, for the person who presses on, for a person who, who doesn't give up. For a person that understands that, yes, we cannot live a perfect life, but we can be committed to the words of Jesus Christ. I will make them a, t- I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God. Once and for all, they will be secure. And they will never have to run. And they will never have to leave and their name, and they will be with the Lord forever. And though our lives are filled with uncertainty and brokenness and challenges and strife and and just cultural tensions that pull us in all kinds of directions, one day for the victorious, one day we will have the security and the strength that we so desire here on earth. That's the promise of God. That is the promise of God. And on that person, on that person, God will write his name on. And on that person, the name of the new city, the new Jerusalem will be written on. And on that person, the new name of Jesus will be written on them, which will reveal who he is in all his entirety. That person, without a doubt, belongs to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Those with ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for grace and mercy. Spirit, I pray that you would come and just fill fill us with the word of God. Reveal to us what, what it means and how we're to engage it and live it. Remind us of those things that even we've learned in our youth. Empower us to walk in it. Let us be men and women of grace as Jesus was a man of grace. Let us be men and women of mercy, as Jesus was a man of mercy. Let us walk in the authority of the Spirit, as Jesus walked in that authority. Let us recognize the love of God in our lives, as Jesus knew he was loved by the Father. Give us a mind that can only do what we see the Father doing, as Jesus lived his entire life that way. 
Forgive us for our shortcoming. Forgive us of our sin. Help us to accept that forgiveness and walk as forgiven children. Putting away guilt, putting away shame, putting on Christ in all victory. God, we thank you for the gift of Christ. Amen. I love you guys. Have a great day today, dads. I won't be preaching to you next week, but I'll see you next week. I got nothing else. <laughs>